0: like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name is Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated f-word i'm excited for you to hear this conversation with dr matt gorn as we talk about how to budget for happiness but first the most hated f-word is teaming up with junior achievement as we are putting on a four-part virtual money and mindset conference the theme is resilience from your minds to your wallet And it's taking place starting on November 18th, and it will go for four weeks after November 18th and ending on December 9th, every Wednesday at 12 noon Mountain Standard. We have 11 amazing speakers, some entrepreneurs, some personal finance experts, all talking about resilience from your minds to your wallet. I promise you this will be money well spent. And at $20 to access all 11 speakers, I'm sure you will enjoy the information. You can head over to com backslash events for more information. Hope to see you out. All right. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast, where it's our goal to examine the intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And today I'm pleased to have on the podcast. Dr. Matt Gorin. I first came across his name when I was reading an article called How to Budget for Happiness. And in that article, it talked about a budgeting strategy that Matt focuses on. And as I read it, I thought, this guy's brilliant. I got to get him on the podcast. Then I found out he was doing a whole bunch of pro bono financial planning and works at a university and has a PhD in psychology. I'm like, I really got to get him on the podcast. And fortunately, he's here with us today. So I'm just going to read his bio. So Matt is an assistant professor of financial planning at the American College of Financial Services. He joined the college in 2018, having previously served as a professor in financial planning program at the University of Georgia. Gorin is an acclaimed teacher and speaker who focuses on the interplay of personal finance and psychology. His personal finance radio show and podcast Nothing Funny About Money, was named 2018's Most Outstanding Consumer Financial Information Resource by the AFCPE. The show puts a lighthearted spin on personal finances and emphasizes solution-focused thinking and action. This mindset extends to Goran's work as a pro bono financial advisor and instructor. He has worked with over 4,000 individuals across Canada, which is just amazing. Goran has provided business development and strategic consulting to dozen organizations ranging from small fintech startups to large land grant universities and fortune 500 corporations through his work. He's created and expanded financial literacy programs that now help thousands of students from children to seniors. And in 2017, his team at the university of Georgia's aspire clinic was named pro bono advisor of the year by financial planning magazine. So Matt, Welcome to the show. I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah. So Matt, in the start, I kind of talked about how the podcast is about that intersection between our minds, our money, and what matters most. And I thought, hey, having all this education in psychology, doing the work on the financial planning side, and focusing a lot about happiness, I thought you'd be a great asset to the show. The first question I want to explore with you, though, is... I was doing some research on you and I saw you did some presentations called The Path to Financial Independence. So this word has been thrown around a lot of a light, as a light. A lot of bloggers, podcasts talk about financial independence, the FIRE movement, which stands for Financially Independent Retire Early. So this term is used a lot for good reason. But my question is to you, is explain in Matt's definition or perspective, what is financial independence? And then how do you feel people can go or get on that journey to financial independence?
1: For a lot of folks, financial independence is just another way of saying retirement. So it's a way of getting off of that retirement word because the connotations for retirement for a lot of people mean, I'm going to sit around and do nothing. And if you're retiring early, or if you're even retiring at kind of a typical age of 65 or 70, you're hopefully not sitting around doing nothing. You're hopefully doing something with your life. If you're retiring at say 40 or 45, You've still got maybe 50 years of life ahead of you. So, we're not using retirement anymore. We're using this financial independence. And to me, it means do you need to keep working? Do you need a job? And if you're financially independent, you can be your own boss. You can do your own thing. You don't need someone else to give you a paycheck. You don't need to keep trying to earn money. Your money. And your lifestyle set up around that is sufficient for you to keep going forever and never need to work again.
0: Yeah, I mean financially independent, we don't have to work on our work for money anymore. I'm going to pick at the psychology background you have. I'm finding, and maybe I don't know why, but I'm I'm hoping you've got the golden answer, which is very hard, and (laughs) we, we all just make stabs at it. But I almost find that this term gets thrown around so much, and I start to see people. Enter extreme deprivation, the word frugality comes around a lot in the, when we use financial independence. And all of a sudden, 10 years goes by and, okay, we've made this milestone of financially independent where we can live off our investments and we don't technically need to work. But from a human's perspective, if we just like cut off what we've been doing for the last 10, 15 years of providing to society, having structure, uh, maybe doing work that really aligns with our values. Is that something that we should be chasing for? Or is there a danger in just chasing this actual number goal and forgetting everything else around and just being obsessed about it? For me, it's almost like we're exchanging sometimes the notion of this rat race. And I want to get out of this rat race, so I'm going to be financially independent. But it's almost like we're sometimes, if we're not careful, we're just taking one term and putting it with the other term. Kind of like what you talked about at the start of this.
1: Yeah, you've given yourself your own rat race. You're, rather than having the boss... Uh, telling you what to do. You're so obsessed with living a certain lifestyle or that, like you said, chasing some number, I've got to have exactly this much in the portfolio. And I think that can be exhausting, especially after you reach that number and you realize you have nothing else going on in your life now that you've met that goal. So to me, it's more find what your values are. What kind of life do you want to live? Not for a moment in time, but for Decades, literally. What kind of life do you want? And how can that lifestyle support those values? And then the number is like a side effect of that. You reach the number not because, oh, gee whiz, I have this much money in my bank account or whatever, but because this money allows me to live the lifestyle that I want. And that's what you're chasing every single day. And I have known some folks where uh, you mentioned the word frugality, they're living frugality to such an extreme that they're miserable they're not uh, doing anything for entertainment. They're not doing anything for fun. They might not be eating good food, healthy food, because, hey, if I can get this certain protein powder stuff, I can, you know, three meals a day of this special protein powder and and live on $4 of food a day. And uh, I feel like crap all the time. I'm miserable, but it's only $4 a day. Well, what kind of life is that for the next 15 years? So what are your values? Live your life in that way. And the easiest way to reach that financial independence is to increase your income while stripping off wasteful spending. So that's not to say get your food budget to $4, but you don't need to go to the fancy restaurant every single night of the week. Or maybe you don't need the giant house or the expensive car if those things are not aligned at all with your values. I think there's a lot of people who can live a fulfilling life not have to work all the time, and they'll be very happy, live cheaply. Yeah. Okay.
0: When you were talking about the values part and your perspective on that, I, I don't mean to sound cheesy here, but it's true. My, my hairs on my body were standing. I'm like, yeah, that's what I feel. So obviously, I feel the same. But uh, I think it's such an important thing. And I wrote, find out what your values are and how to design or live a life around them. And I think to me, I more I explored this idea of financial independence, I'm almost thinking like, yeah, we've got the numbers perspective, like you can live off your passive income, but what about just being like detached from our money and like actually being financially independent, meaning I don't have to depend on my money to make me happy. Sure, it amplifies it and sure I can spend things that are going to make me happy. But like, for example, when things came crashing to a halt on March 15th, at least in Canada, what do you think happened to those people who like drove downtown New York every single day? I don't know if they drove or took the subway, but downtown New York and their identity was wrapped around driving that nice car to the subway station, whatever they do, but wearing that fancy suit, going up the escalator or the elevator, and, and that whole process of like the external recognition is just gone. I guess my question is, is how dangerous is it from like a psychological perspective if we put so much of our self-worth on these external things? You
1: know, there is a psychologist who's then uh, passed away for about 10 years now. His name's Michael Kernis, and he came up with this whole theory called contingent self-esteem. So what you're talking about exactly is your self-worth wrapped up in things that are contingent on something out in the world. And the more that people had that kind of value system versus the alternative is your self-worth is rooted in yourself. The more people had this contingent self-esteem, the worse off they were in the long run. In ex- Example, you're talking about if your money is, or if your uh, sense of self worth is wrapped up in how much money is in your brokerage account, and then anytime there's a market crash and you lost 20% overnight, you might feel 20% worse about yourself. You might feel awful. If that's all that your life is, then that can be pretty miserable because that's mostly outside of your control. And the same thing is true with anything that you, if you're wrapping your identity around things you can't control, you're setting yourself up to be miserable pretty regularly. For some people, it's money. For other people, it might be how many downloads does your podcast get any given day? There's a lot of these little numbers that we can get obsessed with. So yeah, I would say try not to be too obsessed with money. Another thing that I I find very interesting in the personal finance world is the more people micromanage their finances, the more people think about money, the worse they are at managing their money. Wait, say that again. Say that again. Just, it sinks in. The more you micromanage your finances, the worse off they are. So you might know these folks who are looking at their bank accounts every single day, who are doing the day trading and so on and so on. Because human beings are pretty bad at managing money. They make a lot of mistakes and the people who leave their money alone Don't make those mistakes. They're not allowing their biases to come in. People who leave everything alone tend to do better on average. I don't mean be completely ignorant of where your money's going and never look at it, never have a sense of what's going on. But this idea of the every single day extreme micromanagement tends to backfire. And for everyone who became an overnight millionaire with Bitcoin or whatever, 10,000 people who lost a lot of money. If you're in that fire movement, and you're thinking a lot about, oh, how can I get to that dollar value? How can I get micromanage this and that and the other thing? You're probably worse off. Set up the right habits, set things in motion, check maybe every three months that things are going the way they ought to, and then live your life. And your life hopefully is not wrapped up around how much money to the dollar is in your brokerage account. It's what's your day-to-day life like? Do you have good social connections? Do you have friends? Are you active? you having fun? That sort of thing matters way more than exactly how much money's left over from your paycheck.
0: Nice. Okay. I don't want me to come across negative towards the FIRE movement. I think it's great in the sense of it, it's kind of shooken up our current narrative of personal finance. But I think what you're saying there is, or I guess what I like about it, it's, it's shifted more attention towards our money. But I really agree with your perspective of the micromanaging. So you talked about your values. Here's something that I find fascinating is how difficult it is for us to actually understand our values as a human, because I'm going to read a quote that I read from you. It was in an article. And really, this summarizes, I think, what distorts what we think are our values and why some people might have that big house when really it might not be core value. But your quote is, from pop stars to rap stars to popular figures in the media, The image of worshiping money has been used to psychologically condition the minds of people, both young and old, to desire more money. So my question here is, how does someone with all of this mass advertisement, with all of this manipulation going on, how do we actually know what is the core value versus like a really good manipulation ad that we think that we like?
1: Uh Sure, I I don't know that that was me that wrote that. as I don't think I'd ever say rap stars. I it was it it was
0: it was in an article, and maybe I couldn't tell if it was your quote or the the interviewer, and and um, yeah. I didn't want to misquote it, so I said the rap star. Yeah, I think I'd say rapper, but
1: who knows? I don't yeah, know okay. that, would be, but the yeah, to get back to your question though, uh, I, I think. Uh, a lot of us are not all that introspective, so if you haven't been introspective in the past, maybe start there. What do you actually care about? And uh, because a lot of us don't think about our values, uh, on you know, at, at any point normally, where a lot of our values come from is the culture where we grow up. And uh, in Canada, and I would say even more in the United States. It's a materialistic culture. It's a culture about accumulating possessions, having more status uh, as exemplified by the things that you own. So look at how large our houses have become over the last few decades. The typical person, go back to say 1940, 1950, lived in a house that by today's standards would be considered far too small. Would, no, I'm never going to live. Uh, we're not going to fit two people like a, a husband, wife, couple or whatever. We're not going to fit them in a thousand square foot house. That's absurd. You need to be at least in 2000 square feet. With uh, a guest and house. If you, with the guest house and the boat and all those other things. like The way that people live not that long ago, like your grandparents, right? Uh, The way that they would be unacceptable to a lot of people today, which I find so absurd to me. Uh, And then when you look at people's happiness levels, they're going down. So at the same time that we have the bigger houses, we have the more expensive cars, we have all these electronic gadgets that can do anything. We're the least happy that we've been since psychologists started tracking human happiness. So something's broken. And I think what a lot Is broken is we have focused so much on these material things that really do not bring us happiness. They don't bring us any pleasure. And in fact, uh, there's some studies you can look up a whole slew of them in a book called Happiness or Happy Money. There you go. Yeah, that's a a
0: good one. Edward Norton.
1: Uh, Yeah, Michael Norton and. uh, uh, Oh God, Nussbaum. You might have it on your bookshelf there. Great book, Happy Money. Um, Michael Norton uh, is a. Elizabeth Both, like, something. Uh, and, and Liz is uh, Canadian, I believe. At Cooper, I think. UCB. I think Liz is at UCB. Michael's at Harvard. Okay, at any rate. So in that, they cite a lot of studies. So I'm just name, uh, drop some of those. So there's one that looked at how big your house is. And the bigger your house, the less happy you were. Because it's more expensive. So you have less money to spend on fun stuff, entertainment less money to spend on your friends and family and donating charity. And it's more time spent cleaning. It's more time spent dealing with the management of the house. So for those of you out there listening, where you've got the extra bedroom that you barely ever go into, well, you still have to vacuum it. You still get it That You still have to deal with it, but you get no enjoyment out of that room when it's vacant most of the time. And uh, same thing, there's a study out of, uh, I think it's Germany, where they looked at uh, cars and commuting and how that works. And the more expensive people's cars were, same story. Like, it just didn't bring anyone any happiness once they got used to this idea that I now own this car. At first, it feels great. At first, you drive it around and you show all your friends. And then three months later, you're like, you know, this thing doesn't get that great a gas mileage. It's got trash all over the floor. It's the same problems that I've always had. And yet I have less money to deal with other things. And uh, I got a friend of mine, he makes about something like 35 grand a year, which where I live, it's a very cheap town. So that's probably average or slightly below average income for the town that I live in. And he went out and bought himself, uh, had the same car for like 15 years. And he went out and bought himself an Audi, Audi, A6, whatever, Google. Yeah, it's a sports car. It's an expensive yeah. car. It's a, And it's a nice car. Uh, and it runs very well and all this. And so he buys this thing. And me and some of his other friends are like, he can't afford this car. Like, this car costs a year's salary for him. And he's showing it off. And he's so happy because he's got this brand new car. And he thinks he's going to go pick up a bunch of women or something like they care. And then I remember we're driving around six months later. We're sitting in this car. And he's... Complaining about how he's got to buy like the more expensive gasoline, and his auto insurance is more expensive, and he's got all these problems with this car, and something somebody like dinged it with a shopping cart or something like that, and he's like, no, oh, you know, my perfect my perfect car now it's got a scratch on it, and he's so upset, and he's like, I wish I never bought this car. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the sort of thing that we're talking about. If you are so obsessed with the material stuff, it can't meet your expectations. It can't bring you the happiness you think. And then at the same time, you don't have the money to hang out with your friends. You don't have the money to go on trips, which for him, that mattered. For a lot of people, that's a fun thing to do. And so you're constrained in other areas of your life and the car stops bringing you any joy. And name your material thing. Name it. It doesn't matter. You can throw anything out. But what about? But what about? Same thing. I'll tell you the exact same story because stuff doesn't bring us happiness in the long run. I'm blanking on who did this, but uh, some giant study that had tens of thousands of participants. I wish I could remember the, the name of these folks. They did this cool thing using cell phones where they they texted tens of thousands of participants, and they said at any given time, like, what are you doing? How happy are you? And that's it. It was like a you know thirty second little survey, and they did this for tens of thousands of people over years. And then they took all these different life events, and how happy does it make you now? How happy does it make you a month from now? How happy does it make you a year from now? So let's say somebody buys the car. How happy does that make you now? Well, let's go back and talk about your car that you bought a year ago. How happy is that making you? And it's like I said, you start up. High, and then you come back down to baseline. What about uh, things like cable TV? You can still keep watching cable TV. You still keep driving the car. Well, same exact story. Cable TV. When you first get it, oh, I, I'm able to watch these things I never watched before. You start off higher up, and then you come back down. In fact, with cable TV, you actually end up worse off than you were because watching television makes people depressed. As it turns out, how uh, the more you've been doing that, the worse off you are. And then, uh, so keep in mind, car, you still own. TV, you still have access to a year later after you buy them, right? So these are things you can still use. What about going on a vacation? The vacation that you went on a year ago is gone. The vacation is long ago. It's nothing but a memory. You don't live the vacation, right? And yet, spending money on vacations a year later still made people happy. It still predicted their happiness a year down the line. It's a memory that you can cherish forever. It's an experience that you had with your friends or your family. You're probably closer to those people because you went on a vacation. So don't spend on stuff. Spend on experiences. And the other thing, I, I hear this all the time. People say, well, that's good for you that you can afford vacations, Matt. How luxurious your lifestyle is and how privileged you are that you can go on vacations. But I can't afford vacations. I hear this all the time and it is true that I'm doing well for myself financially, but I can tell you, that's also a relatively recent phenomenon Uh, has not been for most of my life, but I don't own a car and I'm saving about $500 a month because I don't have a car. So that's $6,000 a year. That would have, that's the nicest vacation I ever would have taken if I spent $6,000.
0: I would say $500 is even conservative when you look at depreciation, if you're borrowing insurance, gas. So
1: Oh, sure. So yeah, maybe even more than that, right? So no car. I haven't owned a car since 2012. It's been, uh, what, eight and a half years since I've owned a car. I don't have cable TV. I've never paid for cable TV. I think the average cable TV in the United States is like $100 a month approximately. And people say, oh, you can get it for cheaper. You're right, you can, but the average is like 100 bucks a month. So that's $1,000 a year that I'm not spending on cable TV. Two things I just freed up, 7000 or whatever dollars versus what the typical person is doing in the United States. For me, that might be three vacations that I can now take every single year to just break even financially from what other people are doing. So if you prioritize where your money's going, you're going to these things that bring you no joy, or are you spending your money on things that bring you a lot of joy and a lifetime of memories, you end up being that much happier. Oh man, so
0: much good stuff there. And uh,
1: yeah. I've got a couple things that I want to kind of unpack
0: on that. It's interesting you brought up about the trip in the car, because one of the, I guess, impetus to why I started in the personal financial journey about 10, 15 years ago was in university. um, My wife and I, We lived in a small town in rural Alberta, and we didn't have much multicultural types of food. When we went to university in the big city, there was all this amazing food from around the world. We're like, let's go travel around the world and just eat all this good food. So we dropped out of university for for a year and traveled around the world for about 20 months. And at that same time, my friend bought a used car for about $24,000. It was a nice car because this about 11 years ago. And our trip together it was thirty two thousand dollars Canadian, so like ten thousand American. <laughs> no, just kidding, not that much, not quite that low. But as I go down the journey more and more of understanding my money relationship, what are my values? It's interesting how you said about that experience lives on. It's eleven years later, and I feel like almost like a compounding effect of that experience is actually becoming deeper and deeper in me as I get deeper in are I become more congruent with my spending and uh, values. So it's super interesting that you bring that up. That was more of a comment. I want to touch on, you were talking about like you buy that material thing and it goes up the dopamine or whatever the endorphins are and it goes down. Can you speak to, and I, I believe it was, yeah, it was on your podcast. I was listening to your guys' podcast, which is really a great way to facilitate this information. But you were quoting Dan uh, Arelli, Arelli, I can't, the dollar and cents book. Yeah. And you guys kind of basically talked about the irrational bias. So two things here. Is like when our dopamine's going up, is that our irrational bias that says as it's going down, I got to buy something else to kind of, I guess, go on that hedonic treadmill, so to speak. So maybe can you just talk to us what's happening when we subscribe to that? Oh, I got to buy this. And I, I like that happiness, but what's happening to us when, when that decreases? And then our happiness level, just we need to buy bigger and better things.
1: Yeah, so the process you you said hedonic treadmill—that's the name of this process. So if you want to Google this, if you want to check it out for yourself, hedonic treadmill. And yeah, Dan Ariely's got a ton of great stuff. He is a wonderful researcher and speaker to check out too. So dopamine is one of our basic neurotransmitters that is associated a lot with pleasure, and it's especially notorious for being involved with uh, the use of heroin and drugs like that other opiates so if you're taking a, a drug like heroin you just get this massive spike in dopamine you feel amazing it's euphoric i've been told i don't know what the experience firsthand is like but then your body chases that human beings for whatever reason are really wired to chase that dopamine high and if you get that from buying the car and you reach that peak you start to come down you're Mind normally is telling you, hey, go get that again. And where was the last time we got that from buying the car, from buying the thing? So this gets to what we call a shopping addict. Those people who get a lot of that rush from shopping then think to themselves, irrationally, I guess, the place for me to get that high is to go buy more stuff because that's where I know that that high comes from. The high also comes from using heroin. So maybe that's an alternative that you could explore. It also comes from interacting with friends and family. It comes from playing sports and doing fun activities like that. It comes from all sorts of things. And most of the things that are the most sustainable and better in other ways are free or nearly free, like hanging out with your loved ones, you can do without paying anything at all. So trick your body a little bit into associating hanging out with friends with the dopamine production, get away from the habit of, let me just buy more stuff, recognize that you're not wrong, buying more stuff can give you that high, but that's not the best place to get it. There are so many other things that are much better for you in the long run, better for your mental health, your physical health, better for your social relationships, and better for keeping that around for longer periods of time.
0: So then this brings me to that budgeting strategy that, and you recited in someone else's article, it was called Budget to Experience Happiness or something like that. Can you speak about, and I'm sure this is what you practice in your spending, and it goes towards in line of our conversation is, what when you talk about budgeting to people, I mean, it's like a, sometimes we, we look budgeting and dieting is the same. People go on these extremely tight our diets or budgets. But how do you recommend people spend their money in your I think it's four steps that you have. Or categories. Yeah,
1: I, well, let's, let's talk about that budgeting, dieting thing. So the key to all of this is building habits. The key to all of this is having these things be automatic and unconscious. For those of you out there who go on the diet and then you drop the diet, go on the diet again and drop it, it's that your base underlying habits have never really been set. They haven't been made automatic. And same thing for budgeting. If you're going to do something, say, just for the next month, or so I'm not going to buy X for the next month. I'm going to go without for the next month. And you're really forcing yourself to do something. You're going to rebound. That's going to happen. So all of this is based on how do we set habits and automatic behavior so it's kind of outside of our control. And I don't have a great title for this. Sometimes I call it hedonic accounting. We had hedonic treadmill before. Now we got hedonic. Counting, And no one likes talking about budgeting. It's not a sexy topic, but this is more, how do you set up your lifestyle a little bit? And the way that I think about this is to divide all of our expenses into four categories across two dimensions. So it makes a little like grid, like you draw a line, vertical line, you draw a horizontal line, you can make a little like, grid from that. So we've got fixed expenses and we've got variable expenses. That's one dimension, fixed to variable. And then another dimension is our needs versus our wants. So we've got fixed needs, fixed wants, variable needs, variable wants. And every expense you have goes somewhere on this grid. Some things are very clearly fixed needs. Other things are very clearly fixed wants. Some of them are like a little bit of each. So um, if we think about like fixed needs, you have to pay some money for housing. There's some dollar value that you have to pay for housing. And if you go below that dollar value, you either are uh, homeless or you're living in substandard housing. There's some dollar value. We really can't get lower than that. That amount would be the fixed need part. But a lot of us are not living exactly down to that level only. A lot of us, when we're spending on housing, we're spending that money plus some extra money because we want to live in the community apartment complex that has the pool. that we really don't need, but it's nice to have a pool. So we're over, we're spending extra. And that extra bit now bleeds into the fixed want. We don't need it. We want it. We think it's going to make us happy. So that's fixed because rent's going to hit you every month. You can't go to your landlord and say, this month, I'm thinking, nah, I'm not going to pay this month. I'm going to let it slide for myself. The landlord's not going to go, oh, that's fine. No, they're going to force you to pay. Or they're going to evict you. So it's fixed. It's every month you see it coming. So housing is the fixed need. You can maybe see the fixed want piece of housing there. Same thing for transportation. For some people, they need to have some kind of transportation to get to work every day. I don't because I work from home. My commute is walking out of my bedroom into my office. So I, I don't have much of a commute. But some people, they live 40 minutes away from where they work. Okay, you probably need a car. So same idea. Do you, you need a car? So that's a fixed expense, a fixed need. But do you need the Audi A6? Probably not. You could go with the Hyundai Elantra, for example, which is a very cheap economical car. So same idea. How much do you need to spend? How much do you want to spend? And then we've got the things, fixed wants, that are clearly just wants, no one needs cable tv i don't care what anyone has to say cable tv didn't exist until like 1980 so anybody who claims to me that we need cable tv no you're simply wrong because for almost all of human history cable tv didn't exist so it simply cannot be a need a, a lot of these other things we spend our money on if they didn't exist before like your own lifetime then it's not a need and you're tricking yourself. You, you believe the marketing hype. That's what's going on there. So very much of what we spend on is our fixed wants. Probably true in Canada. It's definitely true in the United States that if you look at your middle-class Americans, the majority of their spending is on fixed wants. Go so look at their budget. Where's their money going? It's spending a lot on housing that they don't actually need. It's spending a lot on cars and transport. It's spending a lot on entertainment on going out to restaurants and stuff. That's where the majority of the money is going, of, of discretionary, work of the money go? It's going into those fixed wants. Okay, variable. What are variable expenses like? These, we don't know exactly when they're going to come. They may never come, these expenses. Fixed is regular. It's routine. You, you see it coming a mile away, whether it's once a week or once a day or once a year. Variable is things like your healthcare expenses. And I know this is very foreign to Canadians, but in America, we have to pay a lot of money for healthcare expenses. In Canada, you get a triple bypass and it's either free or what, they send you a bill for like eight bucks, a little different uh, here. So, but you don't know when it's going to come, right? You don't know exactly when that health emergency is going to happen. So that makes it variable. And a vacation, you don't know exactly when you're going going to take the vacation. There's some flexibility there. So that also makes it very good. Healthcare expenses, of course, would be variable needs. You're not going to get a doctor telling you, look, you need the triple bypass. And you're like, eh, I don't know. I see my heart as horrible want. No, it's a need. You got to go deal with that. The vacation, of course, would be that variable want. You, you don't have to go on a vacation. It's up to you. You think the vacation is going So there's our four categories. And like I said, some expenses fit into both. Some are kind of clearly belong to one. And the research on this, which again comes from Happy Money and all those studies they cite, it comes from other psychological studies and financial planning studies in this, is that we have to spend on our fixed needs. Have to. If you don't spend enough money to meet your fixed needs, your stress level shoots through the roof. So when we look at studies on health outcomes for low-income people, where a lot of low-income people have worse health outcomes than middle-class people or or upper-class people. The reason for that primarily is way higher stress levels. Poor people suffer all sorts of stress-related illnesses. Where is that stress coming from? Inability to meet their needs is one place where that comes from, the primary place. So if you can't meet those needs, you're in a lot of trouble. Your stress level gets up. Your life is much worse. So have to spend there. variable needs. If you can afford to pay for those out of pocket, okay, we want to have some savings set aside to pay for those things. So having an emergency fund, for example, and people who have emergency funds are happier people than people who don't have emergency funds. There's, again, studies on this. Look at people. Yes, no. Do you have the emergency fund? Matching people by income level, matching people by all these other variables. Do you have emergency fund or you don't? You're happier you have one in part because you can pay for these variable needs that you have, but some variable needs you simply can't pay for out of pocket again, to come back to health care for the United States. Basically, no one in the United States can afford a major health event out of pocket. If you are diagnosed with cancer in the United States, even if you have health insurance, the average person pays about25,000 dollars us. So $480,000 Canadian, uh, right out of pocket, right? It's not that high, 30,000 out of the Canadian. So $25 U.S. dollars 30 grand Canadian, out of pocket, even if you have insurance, that's what it costs for the cancer diagnosis. Very, very few people have $25,000 just sitting around, okay? Same, close to the same number for a heart attack, close to the same number for a stroke. Any of these major health diagnoses in the United States really cost you quite a bit of money. So what do you do there? That's where you need some kind of insurance, where you work with some company. Uh, hopefully you have health insurance or you're on, say, the, the Canadian healthcare care system, uh, having automobile insurance, having life insurance, disability insurance, and so on and so forth, because most of us just don't have the money lying around. We don't have access to this things. So... Uh, variable needs again—you have to cover those savings plus insurance. That now gets us to the the wants, the fixed wants, the variable wants. Variable wants make us happy. That's what we were talking about before. The prototypical one: throw a birthday party for your best friend. That's going to bump your happiness level. With donating money to charity—that's one of the highest predictors of happiness—is donating your money. All these variable wants. That's what makes people happy. That's the most efficient. Way to spend your money in a way to boost your happiness. Spend on other people, spend on charities, spend on random fun things. That's where happiness comes from. How about fixed wants? That's what we were saying before the bigger house, the bigger car, the cable TV, those things bump your happiness up only in the very short term, only really, really short periods of time when you first get them and then you hit that hedonic treadmill. The second, third, fourth time you pay for those things. When you get the monthly bill, it helps you less and less and less and less to where about three months to a year out, depends a little on the expense, but about three months to a year out, it doesn't predict happiness anymore. And like I said, with some of them, it predicts less ha- happiness. And so, okay, variable wants increase your happiness, fixed wants don't. Now let's do the cost of those things. It's back to what we talked about before. Uh, let's just keep using $500 a month for the car, right? 6000 bucks. That's a really expensive fixed one how much is a vacation if you're spending six grand on vacation good good on you that you have that much money because i don't have six grand to throw on vacations every year so i could go on probably three vacations for what like long vacations three like week long vacations for what the typical car costs i could go on certainly a really expensive three-day weekend for just like six months of cable TV. So the variable wants, if you actually do all the math, they're not as expensive as the fixed ones. If you think of it annualized, annual spending, fixed wants do less for our happiness and they're more expensive. I'm going to pause here because I've realized I've been talking quite a bit. If that makes sense, and then I'll say, well, okay, knowing all this, now what do you do? That's what I'll I'll wrap that up with.
0: Okay, no, that makes sense. And... I don't know if you have any links you can send me after that has the visual representation of this, but I've seen so many different strategies around this and this one, I I love how you've put the four categories and it really like that last point you're making about the opportunity cost. You can actually visually see that if you work the numbers out. So, because I'm looking at our time too, and I know we we planned an hour and I want to be respectful of your time. So maybe you wrap up with that point and then I want to, uh, Talk about some of the good pro bono things you're doing in the course or the programs that you did in the financial literacy space. But just wrap up your last part about this. But I really, really appreciate the insightful work you've done in this, because I think this really can help people make informed decision versus just going on that skinny diet, so to speak.
1: Right. Well, and then, yeah. So now that we're at that point, what do you do? What's the actual decision you make? everyone usually when i give these talks they're like yeah i totally agree with everything you said that all makes a lot of intuitive sense now that you phrase it that way and then i'm like okay so that means cut your fixed wants to nothing like just get rid of them just completely eliminate them and then people are like now that i actually have to change my behavior uh i'm gonna stick with that the ideal thing to do is to just eliminate your fixed wants it really is to recognize what of my expenses are the fixed wants and cut them out of your life and why i say that this when we talked about this at the beginning when we we're introducing it i said this is about habits this is about automatic when you cut out a fixed want that's a decision you make one time that is a one-time decision it is made for you for the rest of your life when you sell the car that you don't need you now have to go buy a new one and get new insurance And all you have to fill it up with gasoline and go get it repaired. If you don't have a car, your status quo is no car, so no car expenses. It's not something where you are constantly every day making an effortful decision. It is made for you. Look at the house that you live in right now. Look at the apartment or whatever you're in. Are you really getting a happiness, enjoyment out of the place where you live? And if the answer is no, this is actually really expensive for what I'm getting, then move out. You move out once. You don't wake up every morning and you think, oh, should I move back into that old place? No, you make it one time. If you're okay with having a roommate, I think I'm past that point in my life, but some people are thinking, oh, maybe get a roommate. That's a decision you make once, and then you're trapped with that person. So again, make the decision one time. That's the fixed one. Cut cable. It's done. Cut some out of these expenses out. If you've got habits like I'm going to Starbucks every single day and spending $5 on a frappuccino, mocha, whatever they're called, I don't even know, benti frappuccinos, buy a coffee maker. And then that's your new routine. That's your new habit every single day. So then when, that, when you do that, when you cut the fixed ones, that's the easiest thing to jumpstart this. Get yourself a new status quo. What you hopefully will find is that you have, a lot more money accumulating in your bank account you have a lot more money because again the average person is spending thousands of dollars on these things every year so then you have the choice hey with all this extra money i can go on a vacation now and plan ahead look forward on the calendar six months and just budget it out how much money will i have in six months okay i can go and do the vacation then that's for big things for little things Like have a birthday party for your friend, just spend the money. You have permission now because you're not spending on all these other things uh, automatically. So something pops in your mind. Do I go out to the bar and hang out with my friends? Do I go take the date to the nice restaurant? Do I go on the day trip? Do I whatever? Yeah, you can. You can afford to do that without thinking about it, without having to hold back and make it effortful. So when people talk to me about, oh, Matt, you're so frugal, you go without, I wouldn't want to live the life you have. I don't feel like I'm going without, because if I go to a restaurant, if I'm ever sitting around and be like, you know what, I don't feel like making dinner tonight, then I'll just go order takeout. If I want to go to a bar, I I can't recall the last time, it's been a decade at least since I was like, ah, can I really afford to go to the bar? Can I afford to take this person on a date? Those thoughts don't enter my mind. So I don't feel like I'm going without. Uh, it's very rare that I ever think, oh, I wish I had a car. That's an extremely rare thought for me. And I know that I work from home and I this is how my life is set up. Do that same math for yourself. What do I really need? What am I just kind of wasting my money on? Do it once, set up the new habits, set up the new status quo and you will be that much better off. And then the other last thing I'll add on that that people never want to talk about is it's not just about cutting expenses, it's about raising your income. And I can say that all of this becomes so much easier if you find ways to raise your income. And that's like an entire another episode of your show, but absolutely try to find ways to increase income. And a lot of people believe wrongly that they're trapped. in Whatever job they have, they're trapped at in whatever income level they're at, and that is absolutely not true. There are so many ways that you can ask for the raise, apply for new jobs, get the new education, get the new skill, and dramatically increase your income. And for folks that I've helped, where they've been saying, I'm trapped in the $30,000 a year job, this is all that it is. I've seen people double their income. You're not trapped in the way that you think you are. And if you can jack up your income, that is gonna make your life so much easier. Oh,
0: Again, a lot of good stuff here. And, you know, your approach to budgeting, like I was saying, really, really resonates with me. But then you supercharge it with talking about the habits, because that's something that we just don't talk about. We're like, here's a new budgeting strategy, go. And then, you know, as you've talked about earlier, our human behaviors aren't good at saving money. So I really, really like that notion of cutting those fixed wants. And, I know a bit of background where I've been reading with you for a long time. You had little housing costs, just do interesting ways where I think you had roommates for a while. I mean, I'm 35. I have two kids. We have a roommate who lives in our basement. That brings me to a point where I just want to make, I feel like what this does is it allows us to be very, very conscious of how we're spending and then intentional how we want to go forward. Where then, like you were saying about going out for dinner or going on your vacation, then we can actually use the money to facilitate these things that bring us joy or fulfillment in life. Because yes, those things do cost money. I like to do triathlon. So I need to buy a bike, but, but this program or this budgeting strategy, like you've done allows me to reduce those fixed wants. So then like you saying, I like how you said it, just do it when that birthday comes up and you don't have that. I don't know if it's cortisol or whatever, that stress feeling coming up being like, Oh, can I afford this? because we're unconsciously spending so much money. So I really, really like how you frame this.
1: Actually, so I'm supposed to be doing like media outreach as like part of my job. So oh. you know, every time I'm on one of these shows, I'm just like, all right, I'm going to go on this one. And I'm like, great, that counts as your part of your job. Like, all right.
0: No kidding. We'll get everywhere they can find you and about your college at the end here. But I want to circle back to something that's going to segue to my point here. But You had talked about earlier how you said sometimes like, for example, with you going on vacations, people like, oh, I can't afford a vacation. Then you broke down the car example, can pay for three vacations. Something I think is really important because I think we all have this. And again, you would know the psychological tendency of this, but like people might say, oh, I can't do that because I have a kid or I can't do that because I have kids. And I understand and recognize those are barriers. But I think the sentiment that I don't want to get lost is not that everybody should go without a car. Like you said, some people might need a car. Everyone can, to some degree, focus on those fixed wants, like your case, the car, so that they can decrease it. I think your message is not everybody lose their car. It's be aware, be conscious, and try to make your own decisions that are personal for yourself. Would that be correct?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not saying that people should live my life. No, absolutely not. Uh, I have a ridiculous, silly life. People should do this for themselves and be deliberate about it. really take the time, you know, and a not ridiculous long time, an hour or two, think about where your money's going and then see where can we cut back and really not suffer for it.
0: Right. And I want to say that or put that out just because I know for my, I guess I'm saying this because I'm human and I know about that is sometimes your brain's like, Oh, my situation, I've got three kids or I got kids. Matt doesn't have kids. doesn't apply. I can't do that. The message in here is just, everyone can take a look at their expenses.
1: Yeah, when I first started graduate school, one of the older grad students was a married guy. And I think he had three kids, he might've had four. And he was making, let's say in today's dollars, like $17,000 a year as a grad student. Okay, this was a few years ago, but something like that. And his wife didn't work. So one earner household, 17,000 a year, and he had at least three kids. So if that dude could make it work, then you can (laughs) right? If you've got a dual learner household and all that, you can make it work. Do it for yourself. Make these choices for yourself. But I've worked with clients who have had the kids and we do the budget. And do you need to be sending both of your kids to private school for $15,000 a year each? Do you need to be spending $30,000 a year on private school? How bad is your local public school that you can't do that? Do you need to be buying them these certain designer clothes that they're going to grow out of constantly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have kids, so I don't have great examples for uh, how to save with kids. Not having kids is a great way of saving money, I've found. But do that same thing for yourself. Do we really need? And very commonly, the answer is no, you don't. And I'll say
0: with the kids, they'll save you money, but those little things do bring you a bundle of joy.
1: Kids do. It gives you purpose that I don't have.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, people find it in different ways. So this is my last point. You've alluded to already is when we have the ability to spend above our fixed needs. I mean, we're in a good position financially where we have extra money. Some people aren't fortunate, so some of this conversation wouldn't resonate with them because, like you said, they're experiencing a lot of stress because they're trying to meet their fixed expenses or needs. As a system of the financial planning, the financial services industry, I feel like it's incredibly broken. The Most planners focus at high affluent individuals with a lot of money. Something that I've really seen that you're dedicated to is kind of breaking the way financial literacy is provided or even paving new ways. I don't even know if financial literacy is provided in those high network meetings, more asset management. But can you explain the pro bono work you've been doing, how you're trying to help the system, the people who might not get uh, exposure to financial literacy? Can you just talk about what what you've been doing? Because I think it's incredible that you're doing your part to help the overall system.
1: Yeah, I spent the majority of my time in that world doing that work through a university. And I would say that is probably the easiest way to get started doing that work. It's sustainable because the goal of that work is not to turn a profit, it's to provide a service for people. The work that I was doing was funded by grants, uh, one of them by the federal government that was in the millions of dollars. So, If you take the profit motive out of it, then you're freed up to do a lot more work. I also worked with a few nonprofits, uh, some uh, like the YWCA that a lot of people have heard of, Job Corps is a government program, Operation Hope is another large national nonprofit in the United States. So the larger that these nonprofits are, it again, frees you up to not worry about how can I run my business? And then you can go do that work. There are folks out there who are like on the client side, they want to get help. Look to some of these nonprofits, look at the local university. There's other pro bono work being done by the Financial Planning Association, by Foundation for Financial Literacy. I'm blanking on them, but there's large nonprofits that are doing this work. So that's a place that you can go if you're looking for help. It's a place that you can go if you're looking to volunteer, especially if you're in a large city. There almost always is a pro bono community. Now, whether they meet once a year, as is the case for some of these, or whether they're having ongoing classes, you figure that out. And if you want to expand them, then you work from there. Then I think in those worlds, in that nonprofit world, there's been a lot of change in the last, say, five years. When we started out seven years ago, a lot of the pro bono work would be some financial advisor who, as you said, works with high net worth clients, comes in and gives a talk maybe to teenagers, as we did with Job Corps, or to college students or whatever. And the talk that that person is giving is the same basic talk that they would give to their high net worth people. So I remember going to Job Corps, and for the Canadian listeners not familiar with Job Corps, it's a federal agency that basically tries to give education, tries to give another opportunity to people who dropped out of high school in the United States. So you dropped out of high school, your whole life might be screwed up from that point on. It's very hard to get a a decent job without a high school degree. So Job Corps shows up and says, we're going to give you job training. We're going to help you get on, on your feet if you're 16 years old, I think to 20 years old. So these are Low income people, these are people who by definition don't have an education and they're young. They're 16 and 17 years old, a lot of them. So here's this person coming in. I still remember it because it was the first time I worked with them. And she's talking about a good reason to buy a home. And this, by the way, is in San Francisco where the average home price back then was like 1.2 million. She's like, a good reason to buy a home is for the mortgage interest deduction, which cuts down on your taxes. And, and even back then, only like 12% of people qualified for the mortgage interest deduction. Now it's down to like 4% of Americans' profits. The, the richest 4%. So it's like, no, your audience, right? And so all these people are like, wait, what? What is the deduction? What is interest? They have no idea. And that's what she's talking. So that was seven years ago. Now, when I'm doing the, this work, I see people focusing more on where the audience is now. They recognize that behavior change happens when someone can say, What can I do today? It's not aspirational in 40 years, maybe when I buy a house, I might get this deduction that might not even exist, useless. It's what can I do today? So, in that same talk, after the financial planner was done talking about mortgage interest deductions and lost everybody. Then I start talking about what does it mean to open up a bank account with a credit union? What is a bank account? That was my half. I talked about what is a bank account for all these people who until this point maybe didn't have a bank or they didn't trust banks. They didn't understand what it meant to give your money to these institutions. questions that I was getting was like, if you give your money to a bank, don't they just steal it? Right? These basic financial literacy things. And so that's what we spent like a half hour talking at that level. The more people focus on that low level and then more importantly, what can you do now, right. the better off we're going to be. And I think that's where the field has come. And again, that's only in the last seven years. So again, if you're on that client side, if you're on the planner side, um, get involved with that. Uh, another big, So that's a non world, the university world. Another big one that I want to point out is also basically brand new. And I think the future of a lot of financial literacy delivery is in companies going into workplaces. So a financial literacy company will partner with a, a different corporation and a different company. And as part of the employee benefit package given to the employees, there's independent financial advising, independent financial education. These sorts of services historically were provided by companies like Fidelity, which was already managing the 401k. Well, that's a really clear conflict, right? That the company that makes money off of you dumping money in the 401k or whatever the Canadian version of that is, is also giving you advice, right? There's a clear conflict there. So I think a lot of employers have decided we want to get unbiased input and there's companies pop up all over the United States. Uh, There's one here, I live outside Atlanta, and there's one in Atlanta uh, that I think is well-regarded called SmartPath, so I'll plug them. Uh, There's others, though, around the United States. They're, They're not by any means the only one. And those companies went from not existing a few years ago to now working with hundreds of thousands of employees of these different companies. That is a sustainable business model. It's a model that I think is really good because it's working with people who have that same, like I need to make decisions now, just in time. And there are people who otherwise couldn't afford to go hire a financial advisor. So that to me, I think is a like the missing middle. We've had the nonprofits around for a while. We've had financial advisors around for a while, but we didn't really have anything for this missing middle. And so those companies have just totally taken off. Uh, and if, you, if you're listening and you have an opportunity to, to meet with one of these companies in your own workplace, go for it, usually free. So, you know, by all means, go get some advice from those folks.
0: Oh, nice. All right, Matt. So many good things here. Uh, we have gone over our time, so I want to be mindful of your time. So I appreciate that. Can you tell everyone where they can find more information about yourself, the work you're doing? And then just one book that you would recommend that you feel goes in line with this conversation. It might be Happy Money.
1: Let's just say it's Happy Money because I already name dropped it. Okay, yeah, Happy Money. Happy Money, Norton and uh, what is her name? Liz Elizabeth Dunn. Dunn. There it is. Yeah. Norton and Dunn and Norton or Norton and Dunn. Happy Money. That's the book recommendation. Uh, if you want to learn more about me, I am a professor at the American College of Financial Services. If you search for my name in Google, Matt Goren, G O R E N, and the American College, I'm the first one that pops up. Easy. That's the way to find me. I currently am training the trainer at the American College. So my students now are themselves financial advisors. And the focus of my work is on the issues we're talking about. How do you work with clients to help the client have the best? life that they can. So rather than being the one to meet with clients myself, I teach something around like 2,000 people a year, 2,000 advisors. So then they go out and meet maybe with 50 clients every year. So it's like this multiplying effect. That's the idea. American College, as we were talking about before we started recording, it's the oldest financial planning, higher education institution in the United States, maybe in the world. And we still teach more financial advisors than anybody else. And if you are thinking about a career in financial planning, by all means, look us up. We're happy to have you as a student. It'd be fun. I like you. So uh, you'll have me as your professor, probably. There you go. That's how they can reach me. I've got a radio show that's currently on hiatus. Nothing funny about money. You can go listen to all the old episodes. That's it. There you go that a good plug that was a great one
0: i I was checking out your podcast i really like your guys's like short little like skits you do around money so i i recommend people go check it out nothing funny about money all right well thank you so much matt i'm gonna say my goodbyes we're gonna stop recording and i really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today thanks for having me on i just love having these conversations here are my three main takeaways with my conversation with dr matt Gorin. number one material things do not make us happier the research is clear it has been researched countless times and in fact in many cases material things can actually do the opposite of making us happy so dr matt gordon's advice amongst many others is to spend our money on experiences and not stuff we adapt to stuff we get used to stuff experiences on the other hand, we get the excitement of anticipating it before we go on the experience. Then we get the excitement of doing the experience. And then we get the excitement and reliving that experience when we think about it and reminisce. Number two, knowing your values and those are your core values are the key to finding happiness in your financial life. So A big part of spending your money on things that make you happy, such as experiences, is really going deep into yourself and knowing what are your core values, what do you actually value, and not what you think you value, and not what the outside external world makes you think that you value, rather what's inside. And then developing your budget on those core values is a key that I took away from this conversation. And number three is exactly what this title of this conversation was, how to budget for happiness, or what Dr. Matt Gorin calls the hedonic accounting system. And that's when you set up your expenses to match your lifestyle. If you recall, Dr. Gorin had four categories when he sets up a spending plan or a budget. He has his fixed needs, his fixed wants, and then variable needs and variable wants. And the key is to decrease those fixed needs and fixed wants. And then you can allocate the freed up money onto two things, such as traveling or other things that you really, really value. But it's really looking at f- reducing those fixed needs and fixed wants that make a big difference when you're trying to budget for happiness. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please do me a favor and head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review, it really helps us in bringing guests that really come prepared to have insightful conversations about our minds, our money, and what matters most. Finally, head over to themosthatedfword.com backslash events and come for $20 and see our 11 speakers at our upcoming four-part virtual conference. Until next time, have a great day.